Welcome to On Demand, where startup B2B SaaS companies come to grow. When it comes to demand generation, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why we created this podcast, to help founders and marketers like you unlock a combination that's right for your business. Let's get into it. Dan Dalton, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm brilliant, thank you. Really pleased that we were able to connect and do this episode. Been looking forward to it for some time. All about today, product-led growth, product market fit. We're going to go into into detail in, in terms of those two topics. Let's start where we always do with a quick introduction and maybe a bit of your background and some of the companies that you've worked at over the years. Yeah, so I'm Dan. I've been in, in product management for nearly 13 years. A little bit of a rare case of where all I've ever done is product management. So like a lot of people coming from engineering, design, marketing backgrounds are generally, my first ever job was really a product owner. Did a lot at, at HP. I've done some in, in consultancy. Uh, most recently was at a, a Northeast conversion rate optimization company called SalesCycle. Was then a director of product management at Pendo. I was COVID high end number 12 at Pendo. And then when I left, we'd hired over 400 people during COVID and scaled from like 600 to almost 1,000. Was there during the Series F, where it was a $150 million investment we got from Tiger and Bloomberg, and then went uh, done a little bit of consulting with some earlier stage startups. Uh, my background's been some big companies, some small companies, and I've really found my optimum enjoyment level at sort of Series B companies. So did some consulting, was at a company called Pento uh, for about a year, which is a fintech, and now I am head of product at a Series B insurtech called Flock. We're a connected insurance provider, so we work with commercial fleets like Amazon fleets onto Elmo electric car subscription companies to make the world quantifiably safer through your know, big data analytics and safety interventions. Brilliant. One of the things that always interests me when I speak to guests on the podcast is, is why they have focused their careers in the areas that they focus. So why product for you, and in particular, why product management? Why, why has that been such a core focus for you for those years? There's two responses to that question. The first is, in my early days at Hewlett-Packard, I was involved in sort of the first agile public sector product, which was Universal Credit, which wasn't a great place to be, seeing how much money, how much taxpayer money we were spending month on month and how slow and how sort of broken the collaboration was between IBM, Accenture, HP. And then a colleague of mine went to a company called Turnitin, which is a plagiarism detection. Anyone who's who's submitted coursework to university online will know Turnitin. Yes. And then got exposed to an organization that did product right and absolutely loved it. Turnitin has an amazing culture. They've got great offices in Newcastle. So that was like, I seen how it was done bad and then seen how it was done good and, and just sort of stayed in it. The other side of this is I love the variety. Recently diagnosed with ADHD, so like an adult version, not hyperactive, but the variation keeps me engaged. I, I would go very stale if I was doing the same thing day in, day out. You know, my wife will tell you if I get into any sort of monotonous task, it's very hard for me to stay engaged. But the variety, the problem solving really speaks to me as a person and what I love to do. So yeah, that's the, the two sides of the answer. Excellent. Love that answer. Brilliant. Thank you. So let's start off then. We'll, we'll focus on product market fit to begin with, and then we're going to pivot into product-led growth more explicitly later on in the show. So if we start with product market fit, let's start with a definition. Many people will, will have a familiarity with it, particularly early stage SaaS companies. But from your perspective, what's the definition of product market fit, particularly for early stage startups? You're solving a problem in a repeatable enough way that people will pay you for it. The best focus on it I've ever heard was from Raul, who's one of the founders of Pendo, which was just focus on building 100 fans. 
as soon as you can get to a point of where you build a product that has 100 fans and people who love and engage with your product, that's a really good indicator of product market fit. And that's sort of the the bar that I apply in my consultant work and conversations that I have with earlier stage startups is, okay, like show me your early stage pool of customers that absolutely love your product and who are massive advocates for your product and then how you scale beyond that. So yeah, that's, that's my really basic view of product market fit is you have a product which solves a problem and can deliver value in a repeatable way. Excellent. So what would you suggest to some of the indicators that a startup actually has that fit? Conversion rates. <laughs> Are you able to articulate the value of your product? And I think being in earlier stage companies of where you're having the, the conversation, and any product manager should be in, in sales. You, know, you should be as close to sales in these earlier companies and generally as you are to the engineering team. That frontline exposure to the customer is absolutely pivotal. That's where you get all of that sort of undiluted and raw feedback. But when you are in these sales pitches and you're hearing customers really resonate, you know, if you're seeing a salesperson stretch and really have to sell the product, there might be cases for that. You might need to refine the pitch, but usually you can tell when things just click for a customer. Now, I remember the days at Pendo where we were talking about Pendo Feedback, which is one of the, the products that I was involved with. It was very easy for us to identify when a problem resonated with a customer. If a customer come to us and was talking about how they wanted to use Pendo Feedback to plan roadmaps or do sprints and things like that, that wasn't a light bulb moment. As soon as we started talking about, you know, voice of the customer and, and creating a qualitative repository for product teams to look at qualitative or text-based data and use that to inform the decision-making, the light bulb went on. You know, so it's where you frame the problem, you have these responses from customers of where everything just clicks. That, to me, is a really good indicator. Is the narrative resonating with the customers? Are you really understanding the problem and getting that in with customers? So, yeah, conversion rate, there are obvious metrics. So what is, what's your retention rate like? customers and i think there's a, a really good examples of a few apps that i've tried i'm trying like apps at the minute which are 15 minutes of learning because i've got a massive bookshelf of books that i've bought with great intentions but haven't gotten around to reading so show me an app where i can read articles for 15 minutes and, and understand the gist of a book a few of them i've found have just been horrendous first-time usage experiences that massively turns me off on a product and i think you can look at products that have a hundred different features but if the one that you really care about doesn't work you will bounce so how do you track and measure that engagement from a, a retention perspective are people using one feature are people using 30 so th those will be the, the the ones that i would look at immediately conversion rate retention usage patterns excellent so one of the things I often see, Dan, is in the early stage startups, you have founder-led sales. How important do you think founder-led sales is to establishing that product market fit early on? I think it's huge because most of the time, founder-led sales is also pairing with founder-led product. And I think having that really deep connection is one of the things which sets great startups apart from good ones. There's several things we could look at here. There's when to hire a good sales leader. There's when to hire a good product leader, but also having great alignment and a true product understanding at the very top is what sets truly great and successful startups apart from the rest. Having founders who deeply understand the customer, you know, the more funding rounds you get, the more people you get, the further away you get from the product. So in those very early days, it's really important to stay light as an organization so that you can leverage what is actually beneficial about being small, which is speed, but also that level of insight and that level of being able to pivot is very important. You know, if you find that the original version of your company <laughs> isn't quite right, having that founder who is both deep within the product but deep within the customer is the best person to make a decision quickly on where you should go from here. 
you know, one of the best pivots in an example I go to very quickly is you know, YouTube starting off as a dating app. Someone who deeply understands what the value proposition, what the strengths of the company are, the strength of the product are, but also being in a position to understand what sells, is that's a superpower. You think about a lot of the companies that grow very quickly, you know, seed, early series A, things like that. The further the founder gets away from the product, the slower things become. You have to be a very trusting or hiring incredibly great people, which is definitely possible, but it's the exception and not the rule. So I think that founder-led sales, but also pairing that with founder-led product is is what smaller companies need to do. You know, the, the more people you add to the mix, especially in those early days, the more expensive things get, but equally the more variance you introduce and that the, the the lagging of feedback loops and connecting dots and actually being able to act on that feedback, the harder that actually all becomes. So if we had a founder listening to this podcast and they they think they've got product market fit, but perhaps they've never gone through an exercise in actually ascertaining whether or not they really do, could you outline some of the steps that somebody listening to this could potentially go through to sort of validate how they're working at the moment and are they getting that feedback and how do they go about doing that? What are some of those early steps that a founder could take? You've got to speak to your customers. Product market fit is not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a one-off event. It's something that you have to continuously measure. So choosing the the ways in which you want to measure it or indeed validate it is going to be really important, but it's massively important that it's a constant effort. I really like the superhuman product market fit score. That was something that we did for Pendo Feedback. We were sitting looking, where, where are we going to take this product? You know, We were looking at how we compared against pipe providers, roadmaps, you know, think of the likes of product board, and aha and what we found was is that our customers absolutely loved our product we had over i think it was almost 50 percent of our customers when surveyed said they'd be massively disappointed or or very disappointed if they could no longer use our product that is the, the superhuman email app the survey that they put in their product they pulled their customers how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this app Measuring customers' engagement on the back of that was one of the things that I've deployed at multiple companies from where I am now all the way back to company I was at before Pendo, which is you know, how disappointed are your customers if they could no longer use it? And that's a really good immediate benchmark. The second thing, which is a little bit less operational and measurement focused, is you need to go out and speak to your customers. What are the customers that are churning? What is your retention rate like? What are your customers actually saying about your product? Again, that context as a founder is incredibly important because at these earlier stages, you're wearing multiple hats. You're driving, you have a little bit more of a flat organization. People are really going to look to you to be a lot more hands-on. So they're the things that you need to operationalize. Actually measure what's your retention, what is your product market fit score, if you can get that in the app. Equally, what are your customers saying about your product to you? How engaged are they? Do you have that hundred, you know, those hundred fans that I mentioned earlier? Do you have a hundred customers that you can go out and speak to? Or do you have 10? Can you go out and speak to these customers who are banging down your door to give you feedback about the product and to openly volunteer to early access stages? That's one of the things, again, if you have customers who openly say yes and provide feedback and want to get hands-on with rough and ready versions of your product, another really great indicator that you have those fans and you have an element of product market fit. You then obviously have to scale that and continue to put measurements in place. That's where you can go harder on conversion, product market fit score. You can use tools like NPS, and that's a very divisive metric. But as long as you know what you're getting out of NPS and why you're pulling for NPS, it's much better than using it as sort of a a blanket vanity metric. You raise an interesting question, especially around founder-led sales. So I guess the question I'm asking really is, is how do you balance 
user feedback as you gather it through whatever means you gather it with the founder pursuing their vision of the product and their, their instinct about what product is needed versus what users are saying? What advice would you give to a founder who's trying to weigh up? I'm hearing this from users, but my vision maybe differs, but I think I'm right. Like, What, what would your advice be to a founder in that situation? You should accept the possibility that you're wrong. <laughs> like 99% of the ideas we pursue from a product perspective will fail. People talk about 80-20 or 50-50. Like it, it's 99, you know, 99 out of 100 things we do will fail, especially at the early stages. A lot of it is just a shot in the dark. And I think this is where founders need to, to be resolute and they need to be aggressive and they need to have conviction, which is a word I talk about a lot in the product teams that I scale. As part of our planning process and, and, and any product team that I'm leading, we agree what the number one priority is and agree we will pursue that priority until it's no longer the most valuable thing we can do. Before we even talk about quarterly roadmap investments or bets, it's okay, is this the one thing that we want to do? The same applies to early stage founders. You know, you have this great vision of where you want the product to be. At Flock, we talk about, Ed, the CEO, uses a phrase that I love is, we want to build a 100-year business. We want to build something that endures and provides value to our customers over an extended period of time. The definition of value, it changes all the time. You know, the market changes, everything changes. So I think these early stage founders need to stick to your guns and have conviction about your vision and where you want this to go. But you need to have strong opinions held loosely. As soon as the data changes, your opinion must also change. If you have a 1% conversion rate, you have 100 customers, 99 people said no, one person said yes. Is that really a viable market opportunity? I think that's where... Founder-led sales, especially in today's economic market, is going to be so important because there is no longer that endless pot of money that you can go back and draw from because you've got a great pitch deck and a great vision. I love sporting analogies. If anyone follows me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm full of them. You know, Mike Tyson said everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that's exactly the same for visions. You need to be able to adapt the game plan. You need to be able to look at, okay, what are customers actually saying? Is there a genuine need or a genuine pain point for this for this product? Salesforce is a great example. Salesforce had one thing that they did better than anyone else, and it turned into what it is today. For every Salesforce example of where there's that one thing that you do very well, there are millions of examples of companies that just tried to do too much and failed very, very quickly while wasting a lot of money, which weren't adaptive to feedback and didn't really critically look at does the world need this product like need this product look at what's going on with ai today every day there are 600 new ai products launched product hunts probably had the most traffic it's ever had purely for ai traffic how much of those products do we actually need how much of those products are going to be here in, in three or four months time or even a year's time because you know they've jumped on a, on a wave and not actually thought about launching or validating if the world needs this thing and if we're going to scale a business from it i love this so, Dan, what about the inverse then, where you have a founder who is involved in sales conversations all the time, they're listening to feedback, but they're hearing occasionally that they're losing deals because certain features or functions don't exist within the product. How do you advise founders in that situation to resist the urge to, to run to the CTO or run to the head of product and demand new features are built because deals would have been won if those features had existed? Yeah, I think occasionally is the operative word there. How much is this feedback actually coming up? How, how substantial is it? Is this feature request or is this piece of qualitative insight statistically significant? Is it one or two customers that have told you, you know, if, if we had this feature, we would invest 
all of our time into your product? Or is it something that just crops up now and again and it might not necessarily be something which resonates in your target market? This is where, especially when the founder is the product leader, and I think founders need to be product leaders leaders for as long as physically possible in, in, in really early stage companies. This is where they have to exercise self-control and this is where they have to have that larger mission and have to have that really rigorous prioritization mindset into where they employ their investments. You have a finite number of development firepower that you can put into developing a feature. A lot of these early stage companies which have small teams are developing one feature at a time. They're jumping and, and, and measuring on what they're learning and getting things out there. If you then deviate from a good path into a reactive path, that's where things can get very slippery very quickly. So you have to think of it analytically. You have to look at how often have you heard this? Is this something which has come up time and time and time again that you should genuinely look at? Or is this something that you've heard once or twice, which would be cool, but the folks that you've heard it from don't necessarily fit your ICP? How specific are you in the target market that you're addressing? How deeply do you understand those needs to be able to validate whether this feature request is a good thing or a bad thing? You know, there are Lots of, of people who will use our product, especially in the early days where you may be a little bit more shotgun of who is using our product rather than very specific or tactically focused on who is using it. That's where you really need to have those blinders on to know who you are, who you are serving. Ultimately, there will be occasions of where you just have to develop something to keep the light on. I've been in a position many times where our biggest customer quite early on has come, come and asked for a, a, a feature. And ultimately, you just have to build that thing. <laughs> you need to protect that revenue. You also need to acknowledge that it's a business and there's money changing hands and everyone needs to, to take some, some money home at the end of each month. So you will have to build it. But I think in the, the, the areas where you have a choice, you need to exercise restraint and you need to think about it critically. If I'm building this thing, what am I not building? And trade-offs are always the best lens to look at things like that. So before we jump into product-led growth, I'm really keen to get from you examples of products. You mentioned YouTube before, but I'm, I'm interested to get your take on products that, that listeners to this product podcast may know. Products that you think have really nailed their product market fit. Can you give us any examples of companies that you think have really done that well? I've been asked this question before, and and, and Google is, is a, a pretty big answer to give, but I love Google search. I love the, the focus that Google have had specifically in the search team to focus on a, a North Star metric of the less time you spend, the better. To the point of where no one actually goes to Google anymore. They just, given that Chrome is the most dominant browser, you can search directly from the bar. That is one of the most frictionless experiences in something that in other companies I've also tried to replicate, which is just having a really laser focus on the user experience and being able to pull things down. So I think that that product market fit for Google, you know, if you abstract the fact that it is Google and Chrome is the, the biggest used browser, that level of focus on product market fit, you know, Google it being in a massive part of the, the lexicon that we use as a society is, is, is absolutely massive. On sort of a less uh, a less massive or giant conglomerate note, I think one of the the other products that I absolutely love, which has found a, a good level of product market fit, it is actually a sports app. It is a, a fantasy football app. It's the the NFL fantasy app, which I'm a massive fan of. I'm I'm really into to NFL. And one of the things I've seen the product team over at the NFL do over the past couple of years is the app five or six years ago was absolutely terrible. It was one of the worst app experiences I've ever used. As the popularity of that sport began to 
you know, bedding over overseas and internationally in London. There are many games every every year now, but also as the way that the betting legislation in America has started to loosen and and which used to be very anti gambling is now embracing gambling for the revenue opportunities. They spent a lot of time completely rebuilding that app. There was a lot of visa research that went into that, and they just focused on some really simple principles within the new version of the fantasy football app that they released, which was you were able to chat with your friends. They massively simplified the user experience. If if anyone who is aware of, of NFL or American football, it is a complicated sport. There is a lot going on there. It's very cerebral to understand what's going on with the players, but equally, it's quite different to the European sports that, that we all enjoy, normal football, you know, the likes of. So building something which is incredibly simple to use has massively helped how the NFL has scaled within within Europe, but globally as well. So yeah, that's that's quite a, an, an off the wall example, but something that I've in in my personal life I use. I'm a, I'm in too many fantasy football leagues to to care about, but um, yeah, that's one thing that I think have done an absolutely great job of just really simplifying the product and in a an area of where SaaS and apps and all of the software we use is just so much noise. Focusing on simplicity has massively helped scale the the international presence of that sport. I sometimes think that that's also one of the reasons behind the the absolutely insane success of ChatGPT. That user interface, it probably couldn't be any more simple. Even just having the option to copy a text to a clipboard was seemed quite revolutionary the other week. I don't want to go down the AI rabbit hole too much, but do you think the simplicity of the user interface on ChatGPT has been has been a large part of its success? Obviously, the accuracy and the the impressive results that come back is key. But what about the UI there for for users? It's done really well, and and I've got egg on my face when it comes to OpenAI and some of the products. So myself and uh, one of the the other PMs way back in 2020, we got early access to what is now GPT. So we plugged in the very early stages of their their LLM over at OpenAI with Pendo's NPS survey data. So we were able to train the model and, and basically start asking it questions about what do our customers at Pendo think about the product? And it, it gave us some really good responses. It was nowhere near as refined as what it is today. And one of the things I said to Brad, who's now at Red Hat, was I don't think this will scale because in these types of products, it's just not supposed to be a conversational experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I think what they've done with obviously GPT is, is awesome, but I think the depth of the responses is what makes the UI so great because it actually feels like a chat. I don't feel like I'm querying a database or I'm asking these really standard questions to a chatbot. One of the really interesting things I found myself doing and found other people's doing is saying please and thank yeah. you and giving you know these very, very human prompts to an LLM. And and that's a really strange thing to catch yourself doing is because of the quality of the responses, you're treating this as a human being. You know, I think you find the same thing with Alexa or with Siri is that there's obviously a portion of, 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 of people who, who do really crude things with those stuff, but the general population has, has manners when it comes to AI or these virtual assistants. That I think has really cracked the UI. So just having an input box, but the depth of the responses and the experience overall has been what has made that wildly successful. It doesn't feel like a chatbot. The depth of the responses makes it feel like you're you're speaking to a human to the point of where you actually say please and thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the anthropomorphization of the product is just yeah, you catch yourself at times and it can be scary at times when you when you start, you know, talking please and thank yous and treating it like you would any anybody else. And also, what I was using it the other day, and I was asking it some questions about some concepts around psychology, and it came back with our brains. And I questioned it, I said, our brains? 
And uh, yeah, we went down a whole rabbit hole there, but it, it feels like you're talking to a person. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's such an interesting, impressive product. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of it, but kudos to you for owning up to egg on your face because the conversation element is off the charts. So let's leave AI to one side. Everybody's talking about AI. I want to move to product-led growth in particular. Give me, if you will, just a little bit of a kind of brief history of PLG. Again, people listening to the podcast may have limited exposure to PLG more broadly. What's been the kind of the arc of PLG over the years and where is it at right now? I think PLG is massively in the mainstream now. I think where we were 10 years ago was a very enterprise human-led sales motion, which for 10 years ago, great. That's exactly where things needed to be. Software was more complex 10 years ago than it is right now. It's more powerful than what it is right now. But the way UI and the way that technologies came over the last 10 years is actually much more simple to use and it's much more simple to onboard, which has really unlocked PLG. And I think it is a, an advancement or an evolution of, of how sales works today. I think back 10 years ago, whenever you wanted to acquire a new piece of software, you were on the phone. Often you were on the phone multiple times. You would have a conversation, you would do whatever homework or RFP you would have to say, okay, this is a software tool I need. I'm going to jump in and, and do a demo. I'm then going to write up my key points or write up the, the, the functionality or features this thing needs to take off. I'll then share that with other stakeholders. We'll then all get on a call and they can see for themselves. And then we'll do another little bit of a demo with other people. And I'll have to do all of this herding cats to then say, okay, you know, get this thing or not. And then multiply that by however many vendors are involved in the purchase process. Imagine getting analytics 10 years ago. Obviously, the analytics products of today, not on the whole, didn't exist then, but you were still getting demos of four, five, six, potentially ridiculously complex products. And all of the onboarding that come with that, the training, getting a lot of, of, of the users who need to use it up to a proficient level, then ongoing measurements of success and all of the customer success process and renewal process on the top of that. It's a massively lengthy process. If you look at what AWS has done with a lot of the cell server, that's a great example of a process which would have been like pulling teeth 10 years ago to now being something which is very, very simple, do it yourself. You know, If you're a larger customer, you get your dedicated account manager. So where we are today with a massive host of products that allow users to get onboarded into products quickly to get them to that aha moment as quickly as possible. You know, Your customer should be realizing the value of your product as quickly as possible so that they come back and use it and adopt it. But equally, to do that at your own pace. And I think that's where free trials and the ability to demo or use a product over a, a short or medium level uh, period of time to understand if the product fits for you or not is not only good for the user, but it's also sustainable for the business. You know, where we are right now, even where we were two years ago, when we started at, at Pendo, looking at Pendo Free, that was a massive thing of where as soon as we can get this out and if we can get this into the hands of the customers, it will sell ourselves. That the product will sell itself. So what that allows us to do is go and focus on the million dollar customers that we have, that the largest names, you know, we have Amazon, we have Okta, look at Facebook, Google, you know, a, a lot of, of people who are using using our product. We want to focus our, our people power and our sales power on the biggest customers that we have. You don't want to have to hire a sales team of, of 50 and then have 10 or 15 of those focus on very small fish. So that that is what I think the change or what PLG has done over the past 10 years is allows to change sales team to be become more efficient and more value focused of where the smaller customers, you know, SMB, micro SMB, whatever we want to we want to call it, can get 
a self-service version of the product and unlock all of that revenue at next to no ongoing cost. You know, yes, there's the cost to build and maintain the free experience and experiment with it, but that's effectively free money when it comes to go to market or you know, when you look at the balance sheet, how many people you have on your payroll looking at these really small accounts generating really small amounts of revenue. That's one of the things that I think where we are today is massively healthy. You know, if you're a startup, you could go full PLG. And I think there's a there's a a company called Maze who was primarily driven by PLG as that awesome product is scaled. They've now got an enterprise team and they're selling to you know Disney and, and a host of great companies. That's sort of the arc of where we've come over the last 10 years. We went from a very human-driven sales motion to where we are today, where I think we may have made a bit of an overcorrection about two years ago of where everyone was jumping on the free bandwagon, but where we've we've leveled out now of where it's very much looked at as a as a growth tool, as an efficiency tool on how you would scale a business. I think over the next 10 years, that'll really be one of the things that separates the great IPOs from the good IPOs or even a, a, an IPO to a non-IPO, which is you know, what does the proportion of your organization look like? How much investment are you giving to first-time usage? How much investment are you giving to product-led growth versus really strategically engaging with enterprise accounts? That's going to be huge. And one of the characteristics then of, of companies that would be very well suited to PLG, I mean, it just I want to try and dig into it a little bit more around which companies would really benefit from PLG versus not. I suppose what companies that are going after enterprise clients would, would probably not be, but what are some of the characteristics of companies that really should consider going hard on PLG? Yeah, I think to start off with, one which have really big sales team and they're being spread across, you know, I think average ARR per headcount at the minute, or at least over the last 12 months has been a metric that investors or, or executive teams have been looking at across the board. So for companies that are having a real focus on that, just allowing to shift shift strategy and have that more of an enterprise focus will allow you to then focus on how you would lock all of the, the smaller market segments through PLG. But I think more philosophically, customers that have a good appreciation for user experience. You know, the whole customer experience and that life cycle of how people engage with your product is absolutely key to getting product-led growth right. You know, whether you value that or not, that is an absolute non-negotiable when it comes to product-led growth. It's all about removing friction. It's all about making sure that your customers can get to the core value proposition of your product. Think Nintendo, they launched a, a product which is all about that product engagement score and core events, which was Okay, as a product team, you have to know what your aha moments are as a product. And then how do you then get your customers to that aha moment as quickly as possible? So I think the core characteristics of teams that need to consider getting to a PLG will be how much friction are you focused on removing from your product? You no, know, obviously, if you have a focus from that from day one, your transition to PLG will be, will be very nice. How much you understand the aha moments and how much you understand getting customers to the aha moments in your product will be absolutely pivotal to that. That is one of the things I speak to pretty much every client I work with around any kind of SaaS or tech product is around the time to value or the wow moment, the aha moment, lots of ways to describe it. I just want to double click on this because I hopefully you agree with me that having that metric or that time to value or wow moment is absolutely fundamental to the growth of a business. Would you would you go as strong as that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to, un first of all, you have to understand your aha moments. And then at that point, your strategy has to be, how do you get customers to that moment as quickly as possible? Product-led growth and, and freemium or free, whatever term we want to use, obviously, there's the the freemium strategy, and then there's also free trial strategy. So within those those periods of time, time is going to be the most valuable thing. And reducing your time to value is going to be absolutely fundamental to 
getting customers into your product, but getting customers repeatedly into your product. So you have to have a base understanding of what customers are going to get out of your product. You then have to build your entire experience around getting them to that moment. One of the things that for me, Notion, anyone who worked on my team at SalesCycle will, will tell anybody this is that it was like I had shares in Notion in 2017. The one thing that Notion did for me was nested content. Evernote was really big at that time and Evernote allowed me to create new pages, but it didn't allow me to use the toggle or to create pages within pages at that point. You know, I like to indent and I, I write text on my notes like I write code. I'm doing a lot of indentation, a lot of commenting, a little bit of brain dump. There is a, a structure to the madness, but you know, raw notes are raw notes. It is inherently chaotic. But Notion got me to that moment very, very quickly. It's a fundamental part of the product of where it's built on those blocks. It's got the database styling. You can collapse or you can indent content in a way that you can have a lot of stuff on one page, but when you need to quiet the noise, you can collapse it. Getting people to that moment was absolutely fundamental for that product to then take off. Getting people to, okay, you can create Kanban boards, you can indent content, you can create these pages and these wikis, which was solving a fundamental problem that a lot of people had with Evernote or other documents, which was you ended up with 300 things in your sidebar. Now, anyone who has an iPhone knows this, that Notes, you know, Notes is a, a, a very, very chaotic place, especially if you're like me, where if I'm driving and I have a thought, I'll ask Siri while I'm driving to create me a memo. There's no structure to that. So if one of your core value propositions is information architecture, get people to the point where they can define their own information architecture up front. That principle is absolutely pivotal to having a strong PLG, but having strong adoption in general if you've got 100 features in your product, no one's going to use 100 features. You know They might eventually, but it's going to take them a very long time to do that. You might lose them to the one feature that they actually care about to a competitor who puts that front and center. This is why onboarding and user journeys with inside the first-time usage experience of a product is a core tenant of product-led growth. You have to hold your user's hand and get them to the point of where they have that aha moment as quickly as possible. And in a product where you have multiple aha moments, that's where you should have these objective-led training or you should have the, the onboarding experience of where they go through a task. Now, there's a lot of products which kind of walk you through an aha moment. And one of the things Product Board does is to get you into the product and have you create your first feature. Because as soon as you've got your first feature, you can then attach insights to it. But Jira roadmaps, kind of feedback, they all do the same thing. So I'm reluctant to go back to AI, but I'm going to I'm going to go back to AI again. One of the huge applications of uh, of GPT in particular is the is custom trained models that that can be used as part of an onboarding process. Is that something that you're working on? Is that something that, that you have opinions about? How, how do you see AI playing a role in that onboarding in that almost bespoke time to value moment? Yeah, I think it, it, it's definitely going to help people in the efficiency process of defining it. But I, I don't think it's going to replace the actual process of understanding the aha moments. You know, not until it's on a place where you can give it a huge amount of data and have it give you summaries. But I think that's still going to be a big thing that that teams need to get to. You, you still have to go out and manually collect all of that data. You then still have to distill it. So I think AI will play a massive role in how teams work efficiently. But I still think there's going to be a huge amount of work in order to get there. And I think the a, B testing and all of these tools will certainly help, but I still think there's going to be a huge amount of, of work required for product teams to sit down and do testing and understand the results and then build build automated journeys on that. I want to just focus on uh, on the application of some of what we've talked about. We've got a startup founder listening to the show interested in maybe more of a pivot towards PLG. What are some of the early steps they can take? And also, what are some of the challenges that they may well encounter? And, and what advice would you give them to overcome some of those challenges as they consider at least a migration towards more of a PLG approach? 
I think that the first thing you've got to do is realize it's not free. <laughs> Having been in this situation before, if product-led growth has not been something that's on your mind, you're probably in for a little bit of a surprise as to how much investment it will take to create a truly great PLG motion within your product. If you haven't focused on onboarding, if you haven't focused on first-time usage, if you have, which is what a lot of early-stage products are, and that's fine, which is you know, a, a little bit of a, of a mess of a code base, that's something to keep in mind. So I think in order to validate and get to the point of where you're happy with that investment, you need a plan. You need to be able to sit down and do some very, very cheap, if not free, experimentation as to how you will get some of those results. You know, Think trapdoor tests on a website. Think about how you can start to employ in-app messaging and start to employ different marketing tactics to get people in. Because ultimately, you can develop a free product in a PLG motion of the product, but you still need to match all of the go-to-market motions within that and pick your channels. So there are experiments that you should do within those channels, which cost you know nothing or very cheap to start validating the, the response that you get in within the PLG. The other side of that is understanding, okay, what are the ways that I can bring more of a PLG mindset into the product without needing, you know, developer investment into completely changing the first time usage of the product. You know, great is the enemy of good when it comes to PLG, but equally you get as much out as you put in when it comes to investing in first time, first time usage. So there are great tools, you know, Pendo, as I've mentioned before, but there are whole like Hotjar, all of the other in-app messaging and tools that you can use to overlay. There are also tools that you can use to give a free walkthrough of the product. You don't necessarily have to go straight to a freemium or a free trial motion. Just give people a demo. One of the things that we we, we employed at Pento was uh, there wasn't a PLG version of the product, but we know that from the responses we had to the demo or the overview videos of the product, that that had a straight line to improving conversion. So okay, let's create a new uh, a new video that we put on the website. It's it's not PLG, but it gives people an overall view of the product. And within the, the walkthrough itself, we can get straight to the aha moment. So they're not doing it themselves, but they're getting to a point of where they can actually see it, see it in real life. So get to the point of where you've got a validated view of how you want to do PLG. Go out into those marketing channels, start to put some things like trapdoors, do updated marketing content with screenshots or something more interactive like a video. Or you know, there are a host of websites which allowed you to create an interactive demo and have it hosted in a tool. I think um, Braze is a, a company that's that's got a product like that. And then beyond that, sit down and really evaluate first-time usage. Look at the analytics of your product and start to think, okay, where are people dropping off? Where are the high-frequency usage areas of the product that we might want to build a product-led growth motion or into? And then beyond that, you know, think test data. Giving people a, a, a demo account or access to a demo version of your product might be something you can use to get as a halfway house. As soon as people see the product and they can touch it, feel it, and there's relevant you know, or representative data inside the product, they're basically there into how they would use it. Now, Overall, it would be great for them to use their data in, uh, in in your product. But if you can get them and use all of these, you know, relatively cheap or thinking a little bit outside of the box ideas to increase the exposure of your product, and customers can see firsthand data themselves, that gets you on your journey to being product led. I love that. There's some real brilliant. There are some really brilliant ideas inside of that. And I think personally, I've also used video in the way that you've suggested, where the product is is shown on screen and a walkthrough of sorts, but using products like Wistia, where you can do heat mapping. So you can see if users have gone back and watched certain sections to start to derive some insights from, from what they may be struggling with or they're particularly interested in. So there's some absolute gold in there. I, I love some of the suggestions that you're making. I've got one more before we wrap up, one more question, if I may, and that's around sales and marketing. So with PLG, 
perhaps the the overblown reaction is that well, well what role does sales have and I, you've mentioned that in terms of enterprise and going upstream but what do you see the role of sales and marketing when it comes to plg what was the main objective for those two parts of the organization if if somebody does go down a more of a plg led approach use it to your advantage you know from a, from a sales perspective how many leads can you get to if you're just if you're you know if you're doing some upfront qualification and then giving people access to the product or sending them a version of the the free product that you set up for them you know you, you can use these as a shortcut to do some of the admin work or increase the frequency or the number of conversations you have with these customers if you're going on a demo and then Five minutes after the demo is complete, you share them access to an uh, to a version of a, a free version of your product, which you configured during the demo with representative data. Is that not a great sales experience for you to then see and get a walkthrough of this firsthand from a, a professional salesperson who knows exactly what they're doing, and then post that that session have a a fully created and fully up to speed version of the product that you can play in touch with. I think this is this is what has separated some 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 great salespeople to some good salespeople is just going that extra mile and using these tools to your advantage. It's all about relevancy. It's all about time. If you go on a sales call with someone and it then takes a week for them to get access to the product because the, you've left it to them to create the the account themselves, that's not a great thing. They've probably taken two or three demos or had a hundred other things hit their desk between the next time you follow up in a week's time to talk about, have you tried the product? Have you had to play around with it? So use it to your advantage. Now, if you can increase the number of people that are in the product, you're increasing the exposure, you're increasing word of mouth, you're then able to get through some of the measurables that as a salesperson I'm looking at, what are the number of demos? What are the number of qualified leads? that we've we've looked at you know ultimately from a sales perspective as well if you have a product qualified lead meaning that someone who's already played with the product before you even speak to them and you're jumping on they're already warm you can already cut out the generic demo the discovery or a lot of the discovery from a sales perspective of okay have you seen the product here's a generic demo what is it about the product that you're trying to solve what are the problems that you're trying to solve what are the things that are important to your organization you can get past that and get to the quality conversations I think having that in, 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 it's the same sort of thing product managers or employee and user researchers going into a, a conversation with a customer who's already warmed up and you're not having to explain, you know, relatively foreign concepts to them or lead the conversation. But user, the sales calls are exactly the same as user research calls. The real value comes on the back, the back nine. You spend the first part of the call warming people up, getting them into a, a safe place to give feedback and walking them to the point of where you actually want them to be. And then the back half of the conversation is where all of the insights happen. You're having to get them to the point of where you're talking about, okay, are you the decider in the business? Are you the person who's going to make this buying decision? Are you the person that's actually going to use the product? If they've already used it, most of that stuff's already done. You can see that you've got analytics, you've got Salesforce or HubSpot records to understand what's going on because you've got automation on the back end. So yeah, from a sales perspective, use it as a tool. From a marketing perspective, the product markets <laughs> itself, you know, and, and you're you're getting beyond a lot of the sort of the basic marketing that a lot of teams have to do, which is updating the website, keeping screenshots and stuff relevant. You still have to do that, but the frequency is a lot lower. From a marketing perspective, you would rather someone actually engage and develop an opinion of the product from having using it rather than seeing it in, in screenshots. Now, how many screenshots from a marketing perspective are from wireframes or from prototypes that are a little bit more developed than the actual product? A marketing team which is pushing realistic expectations of what the product actually is is only benefit for marketing. And again, marketing qualified leads, how can you use this funnel as an extension of the funnel for you to create more curated content and to get much more surgical? I think not to go back to AI, but the same applies here with product-led growth and with these skills is that 
AI eventually in the in the future, if we create, you know, an aware, if we create Skynet, then fair enough, it might replace humans. But what you get out of AI today is only as good as what you put in. And the more specific and the more subject matter expertise you have with the prompts that you create, the better the responses will be. From a sales and marketing perspective, the same applies. If you are a truly skilled salesperson who is able to leverage and work smarter and not harder, having a PLG option in your product will massively increase all of the at-bats you have. It'll increase the level of qualification into your call, which means really you as a closer in this final call, that's where you flex your skill and that's where your your time to deal and your, your overall at-bat should massively increase because you're using PLG to your advantage. Exactly the same from a marketing perspective. No demo, no video will ever replace hands-on time with the product. And if a marketing team is able to show that off and create funnels and conversion flows that actually get people to that aha moment from working really close to the product, that's where skilled marketing and salespeople should massively benefit from PLG. Awesome. There's so much gold in there. And I'm nodding along as I, as you're talking. I think there's, yeah, I really, really agree with what you're saying. There's there's a lot of wisdom in there, a lot of insights, and I really appreciate you sharing those. So super helpful and thank you. Dan, I just want to close by saying thank you again for, for coming on the show. What you've shared has been fantastic. I really appreciate the insights that you've shared. Before we go, could you just let people know how they can find out more about you and the work that you do? I know you're fairly prolific on LinkedIn. So yeah, just where can people find out more about you in particular and the work that you do? Yeah, LinkedIn is is a primary channel. I'm I'm in the middle of a a little bit of a, a writing spree at the moment, uh, not powered by ChatGPT, just as a as a disclaimer. <laughs> Documenting. So I'm recently new to the company that I'm at now, which is Flock, and I'm doing a series on LinkedIn, which is the Diaries of a New Product Leader, which I'm probably going to turn either into an ebook or into well, probably both, but doing a few talking engagements over the summer and into the autumn as well. So yeah, LinkedIn is the primary place. I'm also on Twitter, but that's less professional more on my opinions on nfl and sports in general but yeah linkedin primary and then twitter is also a good follow great thank you so much for your time dan really appreciate it have a great day yeah you too matt